both Hermes Podcast, Special Edition. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. It is a great pleasure for me to be back after a few weeks break and to produce this new episode for you. I do hope you have already had a nice first part of that holiday season and that you are keen to hear what Thoughts Hermes has to bring to you today and in the near future. Today is December 29 of 2019. My name is Rudolf and I am your host. This is special edition number four of the Thoth Hermes podcast and a very special edition it is. I gave it the name O Culture Pickings and I will quickly explain you why. You have probably all heard about that great O-Culture conference which took place in Berlin at the end of October and beginning of November this year. It was the second edition of this wonderful event and this year's lineup was just amazing. We here at the Thoth Hermes podcast were media partners of this conference and are very happy and proud about that. In early October already, we had a special edition, number three it was, where I spoke to several of the speakers and presenters of the conference in what was a kind of preview to that. But now, two months after the conference, we may all say it was a great success. Everybody I talked to who was there or had else heard about it from friends or so seemed really happy and enchanted. Unfortunately, I was not personally able to attend, but Thos Hermes was there anyway. My friend Ursula Cherini from Salzburg, she was in Berlin and highly appreciated the three days. You might have heard Ursula if you follow also our Ex Libris episodes, where she has done a wonderful job in presenting two books for us here. And she did not only go to Berlin, but thanks to her energy and investment and also her great knowledge, and thanks to the partnership and help we have with the organizers of our culture, and last but not least, thanks to the willingness of all those speakers we asked to give interviews, she was able to record a number of wonderful sound documents of the conference. Short interviews from speakers, artists, performers, also from simple visitors of the event. And there are also excerpts from some of the performances themselves. I would also like to extend my thanks to Tal Schechter, who, if you remember, did a review of the 2018 conference for us and who has also provided one of the performance recordings that you will hear today. So 
I do hope that this episode will give you a little insight into O-Culture Berlin 2019. Of course, this can only give you a small idea of what it really was, but on one hand, it could be a little piece of memory to all those of you who were in Berlin in person, and it could be a teaser and a little push in the back for those who were not and who might like to attend next year. And for all of those who are too far away or who have not got the possibility to travel to Germany's capital, just take it as a colorful and diverse image of a great event. This is, I have to say it again, a very special episode. Nothing like what you are used to here on Thoughts Hermes usually. It is made up of 14 pieces between 2 and 10 minutes each. It's extremely diverse and eclectic. But I think by this it exactly reflects what represents a culture. Both what the conference by this name was this year and what our culture in general is and means. So I do hope you will enjoy. Today I will not do the usual intro stuff about website, Patreon and feedback. That'll come back next time. Just lean back and enjoy the show. A special episode for a special time of the year. Just know so much. Next week, on January 5, 2020, we will start our new regular season and I will give you the name of our first guest at the end of this episode. And with that new season, season four it is, there will come a few nice new things and surprises in Thoth Hermes. So stay with us until the end. Two last remarks before we start the program. In order to help you with retrieving your favorite part of this show, you can, if your listening device and software allow it, use the chapter marks that we provide in the episodes to navigate. Each of the 14 program points has its own marker, so make use of them. And bear in mind these are all live recordings made with portable devices live at the conference in Berlin. The sound quality is good, but sometimes the live ambience is a bit loud. Well, what do you want? People enjoy it themselves and they let it hear. And there is some background noise and the live performances are live performances. But that's what live performances are. And at some point there is even a very excited dog barking. When I edited the show, I at first thought it was a barking outside my window until I found out it came from the interview. So don't rush into your garden if you hear a barking dog. It's in the recording. Enough of the intro, let's start now. We begin with a short but very nice introduction by David, who visited our culture. He is, you can hear it, from the United Kingdom, and he was really happy about his visit. This is followed by two little interviews Ursula made, first with Jessica Grote, who did a great presentation, and the two ladies talk about the development of the divine mind and about voodoo, etc., Afterwards, Ursula talks to Sarah Janes about lucid dreaming and her workshop on that. After those three items, you will hear an excerpt from a musical performance or concert by 
the butterfly wheel, an intriguing and taunting type of music. The excerpt you will hear is from their title, City. And here come David and Ursula. the Berlin Occulture Conference 2019 here and um, I'd like to have some voices recorded like how people like the conference so far and now my first guest is David. Hi David. Hello. Hi, nice to have you. So can you give our audience some insights into what you have experienced so far, what you like most, maybe whatever you, you might share? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a culture is an esoteric conference where no matter what your belief or what avenue you're going down, uh, you can come here and learn so many different things. When you read the program, uh, even the titles blow your mind and you think, I don't really know anything about any of this. So you learn so much when you're here. And I've come from the UK. I came last year and I'm here again this year. Uh, it's become like a spiritual mecca for me. Wow, I, sounds great. Yeah, so I, I'll probably come to this for the rest of my life now that I know about it. Uh, well, that's a recommendation, I guess. Yeah, it is, it is really good. It's a place you can call home, you know, you can take your shoes and socks off, just lie down and go to sleep if you want to. Everyone's so friendly and there's so many eclectic people here, very interesting people. Sure, yes, I have the same impression. Probably a fantastic bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Perfect. So you're enjoying yourself? Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thank you very much, okay. David. Thanks. Good. Hi, Jessica. <laughs> Hi, Rosalind. Nice to have you here. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. So, uh, you did a fantastic presentation. Thank you. One of your main theories was, um, as far as I understood it, that um, in a culture there seems to be an urge for ascending on the tree of life, a uh, wish to merge with a god or a godhead figure. And um, is, is this urge somehow connected for you to the Abrahamic religions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I I think um, what I try to explain, or what we call um, the spirit principle, which um, shows itself in the rational mind and uh, acts out via ego and the will to power, and this um, desire to then also go back to this uh, transcendent source of it, um, this is clearly visible in the Abrahamic religions, which are hierarchical, focused on this transcendent beyond this one monotheistic source, and um, the tree of life. Is, is just a very good illustration, I think, because uh, either you you want to merge uh, in, in uh, with uh, with Kether in this uh, mystical sense that you want to become one with the Godhead, as you just said, or you want to become one with the divine mind. I mean, every uh, or most of the occult uh, uh, groups and presentations I heard about or read about are interested in developing this mind connection and, and to develop towards the divine mind, the higher consciousness and this is exactly what this is about that they are always going up instead of uh, down and, and the spirit principle in my view is what separates our soul and body experience from the phenomenal reality around us, this pneumonic reality as I call it in the talk and um, this is actually where we want to go back to we want to have this reconnection 
connection again and this um, connection to the cosmos not separated and not towards developing somewhere beyond to this transcendence but really stay here and reconnect to this phenomenal world so um, as you said it's a necessity to, dis to descend instead of ascend yeah, exactly. Instead of, of uh, going towards transcendence, towards one source, um, which isn't really there, there's one, what we call this urground um, of life, of all the phenomena of the soul, which uh, go, th go through it, become again and pass away. We call this uh, the mother as a symbol, um, which is uh, much better understood as far as I uh, talk to other people already who have this relation and could really relate to this idea of a maternal cosmos instead of this father figure um, in the Abrahamic religions. I see. Very interesting indeed. Another question came up as well. Like, um, you talked about the Société Vaudon Gnostic. Um, you said um, that uh, this is a community um, doing some ancestral work, some work with more fierce entities, and also you're working with ecstatic states in a way. <laughs> and um, what I found personally very interesting is that you said it seems to be a lot more structured. No, it is actually a lot more structured than it seems to be from the outset. Can you just elaborate on that? I referred um, much more though to traditional voodoo um, because many people when they see voodoo or hear voodoo they usually do not really have an insight into it of course. They did yeah. never uh, read about it or something or uh, it got into contact so they only have some images and it's usually wild and ecstatic drums and dancing and possession especially spirit possession which I think to uh, western people is always a bit scary and frightening and course, it looks yeah. extremely wild and as if nothing is really regulated but it's actually not the case it's totally regulated they know exactly what to do and um, it takes hours of preparation rituals are very very clearly um, structured and um, this is what I meant to say that that people should not just look on it and on the surface and just what they see and think it's it's really sure. different to it so not to judge the, the book by its covers so exactly exactly yeah <laughs> right <laughs> Great. So thank you very much, Jessica. Of course, my awesome. pleasure. Thank you. I have the great pleasure to welcome Sarah James. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Hi, nice to have you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Ursula. Um, you did an amazing workshop today uh, on lucid dreaming, temple sleep, um, and the concept of um, healing through lucid dreamings, mainly. So... Um, my first question would be, uh, what was your first encounter, your first personal encounter with lucid dreaming? I've been lucid dreaming since I was very, very small. Um, I remember having a dream when I was very young that I recognized as being a, a different state of awareness. It was a very simple dream in which I became lucid where I was a black cat sitting on a rocking chair, um, but I became absolutely totally conscious and aware and sensitive to every atom of my being as that black cat and everything else in the environment as well. So it was a really simple dream, but I very vividly remember it. And I can remember looking at my paw and seeing the pads on my paw and feeling the, the feeling of having fur and sitting on a rocking chair. And um, it wasn't an especially spectacular dream, but the, the feeling of euphoria that I had of that, like, utterly present presence was... Uh, a, a, a very joyful experience and it's um i guess like the biggest part of lucid dream appreciation for me is the bodily experience that you get of joy and bliss and euphoria in your body 
Okay, that's very interesting. So you had the whole sens sensory experience of that. Yes, and um, I think that, you know, as we were talking earlier about ancient Greek sleep temples, that this was something that the um, supplicants at ancient Greek temples were able to access through their uh, conditioning with the temple attendants. Okay. So I believe that the process of dream incubation and the kind of sleep hypnosis and the guided hypnagogia that they traveled through enabled them to um, have a dream where they met the goddess Clepius, and that they were able to activate an almost faith healing response to a dream incident. So, for example, a lot of the um, dedications in the temples, they proclaimed Asclepius performing kind of impossible operations on the patients. And having the experience of having the goddess Clepius say, for example, chopping off your head and tipping out bees would be a very physically visual, symbolic, experiential um action that you could then attach your faith healing response to so i think in that way it could be very powerful and then if you have the experience of meeting the goddess clepius as well i'm sure you would have a great sense of awe and euphoria of that encounter with a divine being and maybe that awe and that euphoria is a healing blissful state in itself it feels like that yes, is quite it's likely connected, it's connected to our endocrine system mm. basically so that's that's very logical yes, yes it yes. makes a lot of sense to me yes. and i've had an experience when i started to get into researching the traditions of ancient Greek sleep temples. I had an experience where I asked to see a doctor and in my dream, the doctor came and he was wearing a white suit and he's a very glamorous man. <laughs> and um, he told me that I needed to fast for three days. And he arrived in this kind of aura of white light as well. And it was a great experience. And then I kind of intuitively felt that that was the correct course of action. But then I had another dream where I'd got really interested in Zoroastrianism and Ahura Mazda. And I used to swim in the sea. I live right opposite the sea. And I used to go and swim in the sea and shout to the sun, Ahura Mazda, and like worship Ahura Mazda. I was like really thinking about Ahura Mazda a lot. And then I had this dream where I was standing in my childhood home and Ahura Mazda um, fell out of the sky and uh, he was a being of light. And you know in dreams how sometimes you can see like macro, micro simultaneously. So I could see like yes. close up and far away at the yes, same time. Yes. And he entered my body as this um, energy, this light energy. And inside my body, I could see my DNA spirals untwisting. So they became ladders. And then as Uhura Mazda walked down them, they lit up like they became light. And then oh I God. felt that I had this huge wave of euphoria and bliss. And I completely understood that at that moment he had like fixed. It felt like I'd just been fixed. Oh my God, that sounds amazing, really. Yeah, that was a great. Wow. Uh, some of the people listening to this podcast may have the question question may arise like are there any side effects that you know that you're aware of with lucid dreaming positive or negative ones I would say for the most part lucid dreaming is very very positive a lot of people tell me they have lucid dream nightmares but I believe that a lot of the reason why people become regular lucid dream practitioners is because um, they have nightmares as a child and they recognize that they're in a dream when they're in a, especially a repetitive nightmare and they are able to wake themselves up. And then you have this opportunity as that child sometimes to be like, I'm not going to be scared of this demon. I'm going to fight it or I'm going to love it yeah, or I'm going to change yeah. the feeling of the dream totally. So that's how actually a lot of lucid dreams do start as nightmares. Um, and uh, I think that... Uh, with people that have lucid dreams that just persist in being a nightmare and they don't change, then it's a question of um, invigorating or revivifying their kind of uh, 
conscious awareness within that dream and their ability to change the situation. Sure. One of the other things I did experience in my 20s was I had so many lucid dreams and I didn't have any kind of like path or practice at that time, mm -hmm. um, was that I started to almost be afraid of uh, what was real and what wasn't real and started to worry that I might be dreaming when I was actually awake. Okay. And um, I had an experience once where it was a strange situation. I was just walking down the road and this couple asked me for directions and I suddenly had this feeling like, oh my God, um, this might just, everything's just not real. I'm in the matrix or something. Okay. Wow. And then when I developed um, or I started to kind of follow uh, maybe a discipline. I guess I learned how to do meditation and things like that. It started to fit into that structure and feel very safe and I felt very grounded and then lucid dreaming just provides me with like absolute creative satisfaction and feelings of joy and awe. I mean, I think that's probably one of the most powerful things that comes out of it is you see incredibly amazing, beautiful things and you feel awe for those sights and you also feel a sense of great appreciation for the fact that you, your mind and your body have conjured these like beautiful things for you and it's like an act of self-love in that way. So it basically opens up a totally com different dimension, actually. I think so. I think that it... Yeah enormously enriches life and that dreaming is hugely underestimated in terms of like a life enriching tool and that the psychedelic renaissance that we're seeing at the moment is really a kind of reflection of our um uh our diminished ability to dream to an extent at least you know psychedelics have their place and they can almost certainly inspire people to what is possible in those kind of imaginary realms But uh, if children, for example, were kind of guided and more invested in their dream lives, then maybe we would see less of a dependence on outside sources to give us an imagination or to provide that imaginary um, path. And we could have more confidence and faith in our ability to generate that ourselves. But one thing they do say about lucid dreamers, actually, that um, in studies they've shown that lucid dreamers are better at problem solving. And so really? there, are, there are some things. And one thing that I feel I've got out of lucid dreaming is um, a big picture view of things, like a, an overview effect, I guess, the way they talk about that also in psychedelic drugs or any kind of transcendental experience. But I get very strong overview effects when I have very awe-inspiring, beautiful lucid dreams. I feel that the small, petty issues of life aren't worth worrying about. They disappear, basically. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's great. That's yeah. wonderful. Do you think that modern hypnotherapists are some kind of... Um, to be compared to those guides in, in those temples of Asclepius? Um, I think potentially they can... I think they're very useful, actually. I think hypnotherapy is one of the most useful tools that we have. Um, and it's... Uh, it's success is maybe not fully appreciated because I think the power of uh, your mind and your attitude towards your situation and your reality is is kind of everything that you have and I see I see incidences all the time where the tiniest thing will send someone into uh, a panic or an anxious moment and then other people that don't bat an eyelid at the same situation yeah. um, so Hypnotherapy can be really great for getting the kind of uh, attitude of mind that you want and uh, perhaps taking more control of your thought processes as well. So sure. I think it can be really helpful. But I think um, hypnosis that guides you into sleep, like dream, dream incubation does, is, is a kind of um, a different process, I guess. And 
working with those kind of elements of having a spiritual force make contact with you in a dream as well is, is kind of another thing again as well but I think everybody's individual obviously so what works for one person um, may not necessarily work for everybody thank you very much Sarah. you're welcome thanks That was Butterfly Wheel in an excerpt from their concert at Occulture Berlin City. I hope you like it so far, so hang on, much more to come. Now again we hear a visitor of the conference tell us about how she experienced those days in Berlin. Her name is Alicia. She was especially attracted by the arts that were presented and also diversity is very important to her and a special attraction to go to a culture. After her, 
Ursula will talk to one of the artists exhibiting in Berlin at the conference, Christian Ermel, a German painter who explores the dark sides. Hicks' exhibition was called The Necronom Icons, The Archetypes of Fear. And he and Ursula tell us a bit more about that. And after a bit of a shy start, Christian really gets into talking and thanks to Ursula because she made him talk. The second part will end with an excerpt from the beginning of a very special presentation by David Bramwell, The Cult of Water. As I said, this is a real performance and it may be a bit hard to imagine what David did by just hearing the sound and the text, but I nevertheless thought it would be important and nice to give you a certain idea. So I hope you will enjoy and I'm sure you will want to see that show live, which you can do in the UK from time to time if you live there. Ursula, you got the stage with Alicia. I have the pleasure to talk with Elisa. Elisa, hi, nice to meet you, Elisa. How are you? Yeah, I'm feeling very great, thank you. <laughs> And uh, would you like to tell me some of your impressions so far? Well, there's definitely very interesting art. Um, a couple of collage artists that I really like. And, uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm here mainly for the art. Sure. Yeah, I haven't visited any uh, workshops or such things. Okay. I love the venue, very awesome venue. Love the doors. Beautiful. Really fits the atmosphere, you know. Have you met some interesting people as well? Definitely. Very uh, interesting conversations. Uh, and like, um, uh, like where philosophy can take you, you know, to dark or mysterious places. <laughs> sure, connected to art, man. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I find it really um, interesting to see people reading tarot and offering like uh, cleansing with uh, eggs and stuff like that. I thought they would need a lot of eggs to like cleanse my aura, like so. I didn't think he had enough eggs there. Oh, okay. So that's why I didn't get a cleansing. <laughs> okay. <No. laughs> there was a... I caught a, a, a music group that... Um, they were performing some kind of uh, ritual for Baphomet. And they, they were like uh, also using... Um, like synthesizers and stuff to change their voices and uh, oh, okay. with like some kind of electro beat in the background. I, I really enjoyed that. That was very interesting. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So you would recommend visiting the culture again? Definitely. It's a place to come and I think it has a lot of potential also to offer really awesome new things in the coming, like probably in the coming events. Yeah. It gives like a platform for things that are not usually like having a spotlight on it, like occult. Occult means known by a very small group of people. Yeah, sure. So, so there's uniqueness and there's some uniqueness that is more known and some uniqueness that is less known. And uh, we are all unique people here that have like... Um, 
like a common view of reality somehow and it's not going with like the mainstream yeah sure uh, way like I don't know uh, and yeah it's like also exploring more into the what is what is different what is unique like how the search for uniqueness where would it take us you know instead of this like let's all try to fit in with each other of course of yeah. course occultism occultism yeah great thank you very much yeah. So, I'm still here at the Berlin Occulture Conference 2019, and um, I have the great pleasure to have a small chat with Christian Ermel, who is one of the exhibiting artists here. Hi, Christian. Hello, hello. Nice to have you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I saw your Necronomicon cycle, which is exhibited uh, in the venue of the, of the conference. I would really like to know if um, this is a work in progress or if it's some if it's something that's already like it's um, it has been finished for you and you move on to other projects. No, this um, the project is always in progress. I started with one. I mean, just to say to make it clear, it's it's the idea came me by reading the Necronomicon. Yes. But in the word Necronomicon, there is a word icon. And an icon is in the Christian art history, you know, yeah. a picture for God and Jesus and Mariah. Yeah. And so I, I took these gods from the Necronomicon and made icons out of these gods. Oh, wow. And then I recognized that these are archetypes of fear, that these are kind of, from the psychological view, the human fear, the person, as a, like a person. Yes. Like, like dreams and nightmares and, and whatever from, from outer space and something like this. And then I started with the first one and then the whole project went bigger and bigger yeah. because there are so many yeah, demons and f feared forces in the, in the world that all need to be painted on these icons because I give them holiness. I give these suppressed ideas holiness. I want them to oh. come back and not We don't need to fear them. Mm -hmm. We need to invite them. So it's like a kind of a shadow work? Yes, it is. A lot of people come to me and they say, oh, I dreamed of this or that, or I have this or that fear, and I don't know how to work with it, how to integrate mm -hmm. this fear into my life. And yes. and then I, yeah, when you have a picture, and this picture is a picture of, of, a, of, a, of a holiness, of a, then you have, it's easier for you to, to get in contact with it. Sure. And I think, of course, it's for human, yeah, this is it. So it's kind of like, you know, um, if, if you have the examples in the Bible, if you can name it, you have power over it. Yeah. And if you can see it, you can get into contact with it, basically. That's it. As if my icons are gates, mm -hmm. gates to the subconscious yeah. or gates to universe, whatever you call it, yeah? They are gates, and when you enter these gates, you get in touch with this energy about this visual thing. Yes. Yeah, and, and I, don't, I don't sign them. Why not? Because, yeah, I, after I did the first one, it was clear that it was not really me. I was, I want to channel it more, you know, and I want, oh. I don't want to be, it's, it's not about me. It's okay. about the entity. Okay, so and it's about the energy that has to come through. Um, it's, yes. And, and, and uses your art, art skills to manifest itself. That's it. And I work, every icon is, I always invoke the power, the power behind, I 
get in touch with it, I get okay. familiar with it, and then I paint it. It's not like I don't read about it and then, of course, I do as well, but not just reading, you know. Yeah, I want this, to know what it is. Yeah, yeah, this was also something I wanted to ask because um, many, many occult uh, artists do have a practice tied to their artwork mm -hmm. in some ways. And so this is it. So your artwork and your personal practice are uh, some kind of in, in, intertwined or interwoven. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's how it is. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. And another short question: um, You make customized altar pieces for um, for persons who wish to, I don't know, wish to use them in in the rituals. Um, do you get to know this person be before, or do you say it's enough if if I'm being told what it should be like approximately, or how do you work with that? Oh, it depends on what it's what is needed. After all, I, I'm. I was looking for some temple interiors and some stuff for myself and yes. didn't find it. Yeah, I couldn't find it because yeah. where can I get, I don't know, a huge whatever, Baphomet yes. Yes, painting, exactly. whatever. You can buy some, but they are always like uh, uh, um, commercial stuff, you know, but sure. not magic stuff, you exactly. know. So I said, hey, my, my God, I need an alt altar. Uh -huh. Where can I find one? So I build one. I created one. Okay. And so I said, but and then people ask me, hey, my God, I would like to work with this or that power of force. And, and they're okay. Why not? Then let's do this. You know, okay. let's create all this stuff. I mean, there are so many things you can use. And but it depends on the work. To come back to the question, um, when you wanted me to paint an icon from an entity, which is basically known i don't mm -hmm. need to know the person okay but when it's a comes from a psychic state mm -hmm. i need to know of course because some mm -hmm. people want to work with a, with some entities they are very individual okay so and then it's better of course then i need to talk and get get the energy from from the person from the person sure. yes of yes of course yeah so you kind of like um need help uh, from the customer to manifest their vision yes it's like a little bit like a sh sh shaman shamanic work may may yeah. maybe in this in this situation okay because it's an individual thing and sure. it, it, someone needs to look, is looking for some healing or for some whatever some changing in his life you know yes. but if there's if, if a group of people is coming who is worshiping i don't know some god and yeah. they want a picture of this god i don't need to talk to all of them of course yeah, i just course. need to know which entity and yeah. then i call the entity and the entity gives me the pictures what i have to do so it's it's basically a collaboration yes in in many ways yes, yes. it is beautiful thank you very much Christian. yes cool thank you you're welcome
landscape is water. So there I am, this little eight-year-old. And one afternoon, deep in the woodland, behind my new home, binoculars in hand, I spy a little owl perched on the low branch of a tree. Birds are my latest obsession, and I scour the ground on the lookout for owl pellets. There are none. Instead, I find an old teacup nestled in the undergrowth, its handle long broken. I'm overwhelmed with a compulsion to take it to the towers. I cycle there, cradling it in my arms, and I place it at the foot of the taller of the two buildings, an offering to whatever mysterious gods live there. It was, I think, my first act of worship. David Bramwell's Cult of Water performance. Great and really important for our time. By the way, a lot of information and links can be found on the Thos Hermes website, www.thoshermes.com, that is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And of course, on the Oculture site, that link will also be in the show notes on Thos Hermes. Okay then, next round. Now Ursula will speak to the incomparable Gary Lackman. He, like a couple of others you hear in this episode, has already been in the preview of A Culture Berlin here on Totharmis. And this time Gary tells us a bit more about his talk in Berlin on occultism and politics in the age of Trump. The new thought movement and positive thinking as well as chaos magic were part of that talk and Gary gives us a nice idea about those topics and also about reality TV. Ursula's next guest also has his opinion on chaos magic and on positive thinking and he gives us a nice supplementary approach to that question. It is Hagen von Tullien, German artist and magician whose Berlin talk was titled How to make the universe do what you want. Interesting question indeed. And you know what his final point is? Sit down, shut up and meditate. Well, we take him up on that and have him followed by a wonderful excerpt from a live performed chanting meditation by Furpa, 
uh, Moscow-based group in the shamanic Tibetan tradition, Bön at its best. Over to you, Ursula and Gary Lackman. Hi again. I have the very great pleasure to welcome Gary Lechman. Hi, Gary. Hi, my pleasure. Um, you did a lecture on um, your latest book about politics and uh, magic and the occultism mm. in general. You said actually, and I quote that, uh, Donald Trump is a natural-born chaos magician. Mm. So this was a line that uh, caught my attention in a very intense way, and I'd really love to have you mm. elaborate right. on that a bit. Well, the reason I say that is... Um, Although I, I don't think Trump ever heard the term chaos magic or knows anything about it. But he is very much a devotee of um, what's known as positive thinking. And positive thinking is an is a offshoot of new thought, mental science, which fundamentally um, is about the idea that thoughts are things and thoughts can create reality. The mind can create reality. Sure. And, and um, the reason I talk about... Um, Trump is a natural chaos magician, is that uh, thematically, chaos magic shares a lot of um, ideas with things like new thought and positive thinking. They're, they're both, they're both results-driven. They're both aimed at creating results, making things happen. And they, all do that, they both do that through a certain kind of uh, technique of, of energizing your thoughts and um, arriving at what's known as sort of an achievable reality or a realizable wish. But in, in more specifically with Trump is that I think if you wanted to have one word that would characterize his campaign for the presidency and then at least certainly in the early days, if I'm, I'm sure it's still going on now, of, of his administration, it seemed like um, what he was doing was creating a great deal of chaos. You know, uh, he would change his mind, you know, very quickly. He would hire someone and fire them the next day. Yes. Um, he sends out these enigmatic tweets where, you know, he really... Uh, don't even know what he's talking about half the time and they're very sort of gnomic and strange um, and he creates a kind of sense of things being um, very fluid, things changing all the time and you, there's no stable, no stable ground with him and also um, the idea that he creates a kind of aura of glamour around himself and this is something that chaos magicians talk about in, in the books on chaos magic the idea of creating a kind of uh, mystique around yourself where you, you, you through doing this, you somehow entrance uh, the person that you're trying to affect in some way, and this is something yeah. Trump had uh, not necessarily in a magical context, but in in um, one on uh, in, in entertainment, popular entertainment. He um, was involved with um, professional wrestling for many years, where the whole that 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 all of that is just an illusion in the first place. There's no real wrestling going on. It creates the it creates the, the effect of course, or the, or the yes. illusion of some kind of wrestling, and it's all kind of glamour and show and spectacle. And then when he was doing all these beauty contests as well. Yeah. And the thing I didn't even mention tonight, which I, I, I should have, was that um, before he got into politics president, he had years of, of, of uh, apprentice work, as it were, on this television show, the reality TV show called The Apprentice. So already, in many ways, he had adopted the role that he was going to take as, as, as president. Because if, sure. if you know this show, this reality TV show, 
Um, he would hire and fire. You know, he wore the suit and the tie, and he was a very powerful individual. And he was also very magnanimous, so he would be very generous to some people, and others he'd be very, you know, brutal and cruel and all this kind of thing. And one of the things I didn't mention, which I left out tonight, was the whole idea of how notions of reality and its representation, or reality and unreality, have, have, have shifted and changed. There, there, there isn't a sharp distinction between the two anymore. They've, they permeate. And one of the signs of that for me is what's the most popular thing on television is reality television. True, you know, absolutely. You even have television shows about people who watch reality television shows. Yeah, right true. Now. So, and I said Trump had years of practice of that. And so I, I say this jokingly, but in one sense, I think you know, it's more than a joke where we've put so much reality into the television that there's no more space, no more room. So something has to pop out. And Trump popped out. Trump, Trump popped out of the television yeah. and took on the role. He became, he was the representation that became reality. So, and th th that's a magical act in itself. Again, he doesn't, he doesn't know this consciously, but it seemed that that, that was taking place. Sort of, he, he kind of did it naturally. So, yeah, yeah, it seems, it seems the case. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Mm. You also uh, talked a lot about tulpas and egregores mm -hmm. and how they relate to internet memes. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is probably a subject that um, our audience might interest mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, egregore is a French term for a kind of mental entity that's created by a group of people and uh, they devote their attention and their imagination and their passion and their thoughts to creating this kind of, um, again, it's a mental entity. It, it's not a physical being. And it grows, it's, it starts out small and slowly it gets bigger and bigger and um, eventually it in most accounts, it it uh, it becomes stronger than its followers. They they, they can't control it anymore. Um, and a tulpa is similar, but it's created by one person. So it's it's um, one person working away at creating a thought image slowly over time. That, according to the accounts, you know, I, I haven't experienced this myself personally, but this is what people have written about people like Dion Fortune and Alexander David Neal and, and other people as well. Is that um, if, if you're good at it, the, the tulpa becomes real, and it, it, it's it's a thought that actually becomes as you know perceptible as his face in front of me in the flowers. It becomes almost tangible in a way. Well, according to Alexander David Neal, um, who said that she had created a monk, a tulpa of a monk, yeah. that it actually she when it, it would got to a point where it would walk by itself, and she would feel it go past her, like brush against her. And the story is that it it got out of her control, and um, she did this at a monastery in Tibet, and the head of the monastery had to come to and say, please, can you can you get control of your tulpa? It's, it's causing a lot of trouble. Can you that. take it back, basically? Can you take it back? And, yeah. and to do that, you actually, it took her about six months. Where she had to, quite she had to absorb yeah. this, this thought form back into herself. Um, so, and, you know, it's... It's in line with um, many, many different um, uh, warnings in the magical tradition, like don't, don't call up what you can't put down. Of course, you know, yes. Don't try to raise a spirit that you can't really control. And if you know the story of the golem in, 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 in the Jewish magical tradition, the golem is a kind of, it's not a thought form, but it's a being that's made of clay that is brought into life. 
uh, and in all the stories at some point it, 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 the, the, the people that are brought into life it, they lose control over it yes. and it wrecks havoc um, or even in, in um, the, the old story of the Sorcerer's Apprentice um, which most of us know from the Disney movie Fantasia of course you know, yes I remember that one a wonderful piece of music as well where the uh, well in Fantasia Mickey Mouse um, gets the, the bucket and the mop and everything to do the cleaning but then it, he can't control it he can get them going but he can't control it yeah and so, he almost drowns in yeah he almost drowns and the magician has to come back and, and yes. get everything back in control so you know there's a great many you know warnings out there in the world and this lines up with this notion that's behind the book that thoughts are not just empty nothings in our heads they actually have power out in the world and uh, sure. you know, we need to be aware of that of course and um, they do relate to internet memes actually oh well the internet is I would say an externalized imagination yeah. or an externalized consciousness so where before this sort of thing would happen in, in an individual's mind and gradually take shape now we have this electronic medium which is it's a kind of externalized imagination in which uh things that happen on the internet seem, or at least people believe that it's the case, seem to be able to affect reality. So, reality, I mean, this, you know, the whole idea that life imitates art seems to be taking place in a real, in this electronic context now, where what's things that take place on the internet, uh, real life seems to echo them. And this was, yes. this was behind the whole idea that um, people like Richard Spencer and the alt-right, they used the internet meme of Pepe the Frog to get Trump into office. And I mean, did it work? I don't know, but he is president, so I don't know. So. Well, we'll see about that, how long. <laughs> yeah, it might not be, but, you know. Yeah. Gary, that was fantastic. My pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. My thank you. Uh, my pleasure. I have the great pleasure to welcome Hagen von Tullian. Hi, Hagen. Hi, welcome. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. Thank you very much for your time. Um, Hagen did today a wonderful workshop and yesterday an amazing lecture about chaos magic. And um, in, in this context, um, two questions emerged for me personally. Um, the first of all is, Hagen, you said um, that the chaos magicians originally had the idea to break some rules. Um, of traditional magic, if something like traditional magic exists at all. So do you think um, that there's a need to know a system before you can break its rules? Or do you think that chaos magicians nowadays can just um, eclectically work with everything? Definitely the first variant. I'm, I'm totally uh, have the opinion that you must first know and you must first learn the rules, the conventions, the techniques, the ideas and everything else connected to traditional systems before you can uh, get beyond it, because, be, before you can get over it or before you can break it. It's the same, it's not only in magic, it's uh, very similar to other areas. Maybe, for example, in art it's the same. Yeah, You must know the rules, you must know composition, you must know uh, how to arrange something, you must know the techniques before you can start, for example, doing some abstract painting or something like this. It's the same in magic. Before You must first learn and study and practice everything and then you are in a much, much better position uh, to go beyond it, to break it and to make something new out of it. 
I see. The more deep you go into the system, you, the more you can learn. And uh, it's, in my opinion, when I look at, for example, at, uh, at many uh, groups of, of chaos magic on the internet, on, on social networks and so, I, I'm totally missing any depths in, in the conversation, the posting. It's mostly making just fun or often crappy fun or uh, doing uh, annoying posts to each other. I don't see <laughs> much chaos magic uh, at, uh, and not really magic going on in these posts and these in these in these uh, forums and everything so yeah it's it's really a pity uh, i think it's a little bit uh, a small disaster of chaos magic that people think they could just be a chaotic or how they are calling themselves because in my opinion it's not not the thing to be a chaotic, to be totally chaotic and use all the stuff you could find randomly about magic in a very chaotic style. From in my view, in my position, the term chaoist or chaoism is much more precisely uh, to the point of of what I see as chaos magic because you you study a kind or you study chaos magic in all its depths, and for this you need to delve very deep into other systems. To understand the basic principles of all. Okay, great. Thank you. The, the second question uh, that came up was: um, There have been talks about positive psychology, um, positive thinking, um, etc., and many things in chaos magic um, seem to correlate with um, some of these principles of uh, positive psychology. Do you agree on that? Or, or is it just um, on the surface? Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I could agree part uh, only in part. I would say uh, what is important or what is the common thing important to both things, uh, to the approach of chaos magic and positive thinking, new thought or positivism or what you call it, is that you should formulate your intent very precisely according to some rules, for example, uh, formulated in a positive way, in an accomplished way uh, and things like that, not in a negative way. Uh, but as far as I see it and understand it, uh, new thought stops at this point. There's just saying, mm, we are formulating it, we are saying it again and again as a kind of affirmation or something like this. But in chaos magic, they think uh, there's um, yeah, also the experience that this often is not enough. It's not only the mind that changes, that could change or shape reality by saying it again and again. Sometimes it helps, but maybe there are other factors important for a change. Uh, in chaos magic, we discovered that, for example, very important to enter an altered state of consciousness. Uh, while you are when you want to change something so that your intention could sink very very deep uh, into your unconscious or subconscious or what you will call it into your deep mind and there it could work without any hindrance with any uh, without any any other um, how to say restrictions because when you think something you are uh, you are always caught in these uh, thought structures you think of this and immediately you, you can you are thinking on the other side of this mm -hmm. that's totally normal when you think yeah i want to uh, get a new position or a better job yeah. you immediately start to think yeah what co could go wrong yeah maybe this could go wrong this could go wrong this is a hindrance a blockage uh, to to my to my goal yes yeah, sure. and so 
it's, I think it needs a lot of mental discipline to put this away and just, just focus only on the positive side. It's not so easy. But Chaos Magic said, yeah, you don't need to focus. Yeah, you must be precise and then let it sink into your deep mind and let, the, let your unconscious or subconscious do the work for you sure. without any, any resistance or any hindrance. And this is why a, a trance state in, in a way is necessary for Chaos Magicians. It's very helpful. It's very helpful. There are lots of, of altered states of mind, trance states. Uh, it's not that you have to go very deeply into some stuff. Uh, in my workshop today, I, I try to show some examples which could everybody practice very easily through breathing and chanting a little bit or concentrating on, on, on the kind of mantra or stuff like this or other approaches and techniques that you can practice very easily and without any other uh, paraphernalia and very successfully. Sure, it was it was really great, actually. Um, do you have any recommendation for uh, some magicians, like in terms of a daily practice, where you say, okay, this is this is really essential to keep keep up with it? Definitely, <laughs> you can find it mostly in other books too, yeah. And it's basically the same thing all over. It's meditation. Okay. <laughs> meditation, as I said in my workshop, meditation very simply summed up is sit down and shut up. Oh, great. Those are the closing words for this interview. Thank you very much, Hagen. Yeah, thank you a lot. It was a pleasure. <laughs>
really captivating this chanting meditation with Furpa. Next round, guys, and it's already the last one with four more topics in our program. First, another visitor to our culture and his impressions. But, pst, big secret, he does not want to give Ursula his name and he almost ends up interviewing her. <laughs> then Ursula talks to Oriel de Fenestrate Bascul, I hope I pronounced that right, about his Esote Erotica artwork and presentation, about the way he was inspired to his writings and artwork, and about the true will. Sorry about a little static here and there in that interview, but probably there was so much energy around there in Berlin that our microphone couldn't resist. Last interview brings us into the realm of the tarot. And Ursula talks here to Susan Wands. Which is the right choice for tarot deck? Good question. Susan answers that, and she talks also about sigils and symbols. To round it all up, a final live performance excerpt from The Invocation of Babylon by Sins. Excerpt only, really, but I hope it gives you a nice impression anyway. You want to know more about Sins, who performed this? Well... The website says just this, Sins exists outside of time and space. For a last time today, I hand it over to Ursula, who speaks to, well, we don't know. I'm trying to get some impressions from the attendees here and hi. Hello. You, you give me your name? <laughs> it's... Uh, it's very secret. Oh, sure. Okay. But oh. I'm a person who was really here. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, um, can you tell me what your personal opinion is as far as uh, the conference has gone? For me personally, it's like there is nothing like comparable in Berlin. You can say you, you like it or it doesn't matter if you like the lectures or anything like that. It doesn't even matter because I think actually now in Berlin there is nothing comparable to a culture. So even if you don't agree with most of the lineup or anything, it's that you can you meet a lot of interesting people here, which you don't have like which is uh, which is not really common. I mean, tell me one thing that is comparable to what sure. is here. Nothing. Sure, sure. So um, this is your first time here, or uh, did uh, you second. already second time? Yeah. Okay. Great, great. So you're enjoying yourself so far? Yes, it's really good. Fine. And you? Yeah, me too. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, let's turn that around. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm going to go, to do an interview with myself then. <laughs> no. Um, well, I I also think it's uh, it's a great opportunity and it's uh, very unique in the German-speaking community actually. True, and it's a lot of people of other countries. You, actually, sometimes you think you. Um, I, I'm living in Berlin for a pretty long time and in all this time you don't meet people really often who are interested in uh, spirituality or occultism or anything like that but here you meet all of them and uh, it's idiot people, it's good people but in the end 
is better people than you meet on the street. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you very much. Thank you too. You told us about um, that experience when the entity got into contact with you and how it manifested itself through your art. Well, it was through writing in this case. Yeah. The piece I did, uh, Book of the Spider, it's, uh, it's based on some verses, some poetry, which I received from, I call it, call it the Spider Goddess, but at the time I... Uh, I didn't know really exactly what it was, but there was a, the feeling of a, a presence on the edge of my consciousness. But it was a, it was a really strange experience because it wasn't. I call it a presence now, but at the time it was very ambiguous. It was like it wasn't there in any tangible way. Like I couldn't see it, I couldn't uh, hear it. There was no direct way I was sensing it, and yet in, in a normal way of sensing things or beings. But it was still a feeling that there was some kind of semi presence or like uh, something wanting to come through or to, to to wanting to communicate and and not being able to. And uh, but yeah, because it was so intangible, I ignored it for a while. But then uh, it, it it persisted in its semi-presenceness, and um, uh, until eventually, even though I was very tired, it was at dawn, and I was really tired. It, but uh, I felt like I had to uh, get up and write. And then once I put pen to page then suddenly it came through it was like yeah that gave it a medium it gave it a, a vessel and a means to communicate and therefore gave it presence uh, and then it became tangible in a way I guess it, it, once it, it communicated but it's like uh, yeah I couldn't I couldn't hear it I couldn't see it I couldn't smell it or anything like that but then once I wrote those words came through and I mean I don't believe in the idea of uh, full channeling, as in I never. I don't believe that anything in writing or even in uh, visual art is fully from something else, as in, of course, an aspect of the person who comes through is going to be there because it's coming through you as a channel. So I don't believe in pure channeling, as in there's an element of you in in that you're the vessel but yeah it really felt like something other using me as a vessel so it was like um, through me but not from me if that makes sense like uh it was yeah so it's like uh i shaped i guess uh its presence or like gave it a way to to uh to come through but uh the layers or the layers of meaning in the words i didn't didn't get them all at least not consciously like uh you know it was weeks later that i started unraveling more of the meanings i mean some of it was obvious straight away but other bits it was like oh okay and there's also this and there's also this and there was more and more so yeah then i delved the more i delved into it the more i found and yeah, it was quite fascinating in that way um 
Do you have the feeling that it is still in a work in progress, that something still keeps unraveling itself? Possibly, because yeah, I didn't I didn't go into it too much in the introduction because I mostly wanted to just get on and do the actual performance. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in, in the book that it comes from, the Time, Fate, and Spider Magic book, uh, I, I talk a lot about more about the reception of it, uh, as well as all the layers of meaning I found in the book of the spider. And um, it did actually more of it actually came through later. Uh, I didn't go into that into the in the introduction tonight, but. Uh, there were this this initial transmission, but the last few verses came, I think, a year or so later. And it was actually when I was doing a working to make a audio recording with music of some of the earlier verses. And then it was like a, a side result of the ritual was that then afterwards more verses suddenly came through. And I was like, okay, there's more of it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I'm not sure if there's still more. Like it felt uh, more sort of complete. Uh, after that second transmission, but uh, maybe there's still more. I mean, I sort of feel like anything to do with spiders is it's like a web so there's always more strands yeah. and it always yeah, can, sure. uh, can yeah, exactly I mean the whole spider magic book that the book of the spider is a part of uh, is like I've revised it three times and each time uh, there's like yeah, more threads coming out from the different concepts and it, and it keeps expanding uh, it's become a bit of an unruly web because it was like the there's been three editions and the second one was like I think three times as long as the first one and then the third one was like three times as long as the second one so every time I've like gone to just revise it and rewrite it but this yeah. is the most recent time because uh, I had another publisher for it um, Avalonia Books whereas the first two were self-published uh, so I decided to revise it and then just when I was reading bits of it I was like oh I can say more about this and I've thought more about that and it just kept expanding and expanding and so uh, yeah it's uh, became a lot longer and yeah maybe at some point that will continue um, you said in during the perf performance you said something about true will and fate mm -hmm. um, is it do you think that a magician's true will is the same as his fate um, that's a really interesting question, actually, because you said true will specifically. That's uh, what's interesting about it, because um, I think yes, really. Um, well, yeah, I wouldn't say it, it's exactly the same thing as as their fate, but it's it's uh, it's true will to me is different from just will uh, in terms of its its will that's aligned with fate so it's like uh, it's will as in it's it's differentiated from fate as in it's the bit of yourself that's expressing itself yes. willfully yeah. like uh, you know it's it's deliberate like it's 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 trying to achieve something or do something and yet it's the part that's in accord with universal will and therefore in accord with fate and it's like in a way you yeah you can't help do it even though you're, it's, it's deliberate it's 
it's an interesting paradox in a way, but yeah. Because uh, yeah, like uh, if if will's not true, if it's just like the wishes or desires of the ego, then uh, it's. I mean, sometimes that can be in accord with fate and with true will as well. But if it's not, then it's just uh, if it's not part of your destiny. Yeah, and it's just uh, something that uh, you're trying to divert away from your your destiny. But yeah, come back to it one way or another. Yeah, I, wrote, I wrote a thing once about the uh, the the negative powers of the Sphinx because you know how there's the whole thing of like to know to do, to dare to will uh, and to be silent. Yeah, it, the, to be silent is like a negative power, but the the rest are all positive and I realized well actually to dare not to will not uh, you know uh, it, it, all this stuff is to know not is to know not it's really important because if you always know stuff you never learn anything you know it's like if you think oh I know everything I know this and I know that and then you're not receptive to new viewpoints so to know not is also important um, yeah and so yeah I think the the positive powers are actually you know to speak is one of them so you know to dare to know to will and to speak and then the negative powers is like to dare not to will not to know not and to be silent <laughs> and that's a great idea really I never saw it this way <laughs> until now <laughs> and on that note I probably should shut up <laughs> to be silent thank you very much Thank you. So I'm still here at the Berlin Culture Conference 2019 and I have the great pleasure to talk to Susan Wands. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Ursula. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for your time. Yes. So um, today you gave a fantastic talk about uh, tarot spells, sigils and symbols. It was an artwork connected to it. It was really, really amazing. And um, I'd like to start with a very simple question. Like, um, if anybody's interested in tarot, how would you recommend to choose one's first deck? Oh, Ursula, that's such a good question. You know, it has been the tradition in tarot for quite a while that you don't pick your own tarot deck, that it's given to you. And most people give the very simple white smith deck because it's very fundamental it's not too esoteric there aren't too many hidden symbols but i think the most important thing about using a tarot deck rather than learning how to play tarot is does it speak to you and the most important part of tarot is that you understand the symbols intuitively sure so sometimes the white smith deck is just too english it's too egyptian it's just too cute and other people like like the thoth deck because it's a little more more color saturated and has more um, big ideas behind it. Sometimes the tarot is used like a flashcard system. Remember this symbol, remember this meaning, remember this. Yeah. And for people who need that kind of tarot when they're first starting out, I recommend using a, a simpler deck that you relate okay. to. You know, Ryder Smith, the Crow deck, uh, Deviant Moon, things that aren't so heavy that when you get, uh, you know, the Three of Swords cup, there's, you know, there's no swords, there's no cup and you're going I don't understand what this is of course yes <laughs> yes and sometimes you like those decks because they actually make you think more but uh, it's very important that if you do get your first deck and it's not your first choice
choosing don't be afraid to try other decks and I think the easiest way rather than buying it is look at it at line online if the colors appeal to you then invest in getting the deck okay and the best way to really give it a trial run is to sort it out uh, major arcana minor arcana go through every suite see if the cards really speak to you and then just do a simple Celtic cross spread or a three card spread and see if you're picking up anything okay that's, yeah. that's great that's uh, absolutely great advice yes thank you very much you're welcome for them no. you also mentioned black and white decks um, and decks respectively decks in sepia what difference does it make if you're doing a black and white reading or if you're doing a color reading what for your person maybe and in general maybe as well I think color adds a different communication level of you know, the vibrations are actually uh, vibrancy and without that the black and white literally give you black and white facts in a tarot reading it's a little more cut and dry there's not as much nuance so if you just want a quick answer with a simple deck that's black and white it's good but it's not as it can not sometimes be as in-depth as color so some of the tarot decks when if they are just black and white they make up for lack of color with lots and lots of symbols so if you agree with the symbols that's great but once again it's a personal preference about what your subconscious can recognize as an archetypal image sure for me personally i've never been able to work with the right away tarot Well, you know, and that's great because you know that, you know, those symbols absolutely do not speak to you. And so it's great that there's so many other kinds of tarot cards, whether it's photography or sepia tones or black and white that actually speak to your collective unconscious. Sure, sure. So I'm not, I'm not the one who's failing. <laughs> no, and you're not alone. There's a lot of people who look at the, that deck and think that they're too childlike. You know, and the, the, oh, okay. the images just, they come from a very English heritage. So if you don't come from that, the, the necessarily those kind of crusader stories don't don't talk to you. I see, I see. Um, your talk was also about sigils, creating sigils. And you briefly mentioned, um, like, how to keep boundaries in that because you're responsible for the sigil you send out into the world to work its magic, basically. Can you just speak about that a bit? Sure. I think, you know, sigils are sort of a new awareness if you go to Barnes and Nobles now there's actually little instruction books and that's always the sign that it's mainstream media now <laughs> but I think the most important thing about creating sigils whether you keep the symbol of the sigil or you destroy it is you have to be very aware that you are calling energy into the world you're giving birth to energy and an idea and it can turn into Frankenstein if you don't really think about what you are asking to put into motion and that's setting boundaries that's saying I'm going to create this sigil and I'm going to get rich, but are you going to be a slave to your job and lose your family and your loved ones? I'm going to adopt 900 cats. Yay, you're saving 900 cats, but you've destroyed the neighborhood. So I, that's pretty simplistic, but the, the most important idea about sigils is to realize you need to put a time limit on it so they're not in perpetuity, and you need to put boundaries around it so they don't affect people. It's just your calling. Thank you very much, Susan. It was really amazing what, what you told us, and it was um, fantastic and although personally I have been working with Tarot for more than 25 years now um, you still told us something new for me personally definitely that oh great. that's the best compliment ever thank you Ursula thank you very
Invocation of Babylon, performed live in late October, early November this year at the Occulter Berlin Conference 2019. I hope those 14 bits and pieces gave you a nice little overview over this wonderful event, and especially that this will have inspired you to attend next year's conference. The team is already preparing it, and as it looks, Thought Hermes will again be media partner and supporter of the event. Thanks once again to everyone who helped make this episode possible. But a especially big hand of applause now to Ursula, who did an amazing job, who worked hard in Berlin and brought all of this to your attention. We cannot thank her enough. So much to be said, but be assured that Ursula will be back in Thought Hermes regularly. We already have some plans for that, and I'm looking forward to it. Okay, friends and listeners, this is the end of this special episode, which we should have called a very special episode indeed. Thanks for tuning in, thanks for your patience during the break that we took, and looking forward to have you with us again for the start of Season 4 next week. Yes, I know, I didn't forget. I still owe you the name of our guest for the first episode in Season 4. Well... I will talk next week to Natasha Helvin, who very recently published two excellent books about a subject which I personally find completely underrated, probably mostly for historical reasons. Those two books are called Slavic Witchcraft and Russian Black Magic. A lot of this Eastern history and those traditions has been hidden during big chunks of the 20th century for evident reasons. So, it is about time that we talk about them. This is what we shall do next time. For today, I'm happy that you were here with me. Thanks for listening. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon. <laughs>